Welcome, my friends, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. I'm your host, Richard Osler. I felt impressed to do a solo podcast focused on chapter five of my book called Improving Latter-day Saint Culture. It's under the Listen, Learn, and Love brand. It's a book that it's available as Amazon as well as Deseret Book. But chapter five of hope-filled repentance, and I just felt impressed to kind of read this chapter and add some additional thoughts for you, our listeners. I th- the goal of this podcast is to reach those of you that want to repent and just need more hope in that process. It's also written to local leaders, especially bishops that are um, wanting other tools and other an additional insight to help people through the repentance process. This is probably geared a little bit more to single Latter-day Saints, although the principles obviously apply to married Latter-day Saints going through the repentance process. Uh, I want, um, if you skip a little bit of the podcast, please listen to probably at about the halfway point where I talk about the prodigal son. That's the most tender scripture for me, um, parable for me, and I hope you take a, a moment to listen to that. Um, in the show notes, I'll link to this book in case you want to buy the whole book and get the footnotes to this chapter that I'm referencing. I'll also link to an Ensign article I wrote that's the foundation for this chapter. And that Ensign article is how the Savior's healing power applies to repenting from sexual sins. And that's in the August 2020 um, Young Adults Digital section. So I'll just begin. Um, pull up a seat or wherever you are, and I just pray that the Spirit will touch you as we talk about hope-filled repentance. One of my greatest honors during my YSA service as a bishop was to facilitate the repentance and forgiveness process as my ward members changed their lives and drew nearer to the Savior. Over the course of my assignment, my approach to this process significantly changed while the core doctrine of repentance or the atonement of Jesus Christ stayed the same. I wrote about the principles of repentance in a 2020 Ensign article that I've just mentioned. While this chapter is generally focused on the YSA group, I believe the principles apply broadly. Further, I hope these thoughts will be helpful for all of us since everyone needs to repent as well as I mentioned to local leaders, parents, members seeking to teach repentance principles. I also believe we can improve understanding of repentance, shifting it from the perception of punishment to a more positive experience as taught by President Nelson, quote, too many people consider repentance a punishment, something to be avoided except in the most serious circumstances. But this feeling of being penalized is an engineered by Satan. He tries to block us by looking forward to Jesus Christ, who stands with open arms, hoping and willing to forgive, clean, strengthen, purify, sanctify us. When Jesus asks you or me to repent, he is inviting us to change our mind, our knowledge, our spirit, even the way we breathe. He is asking us to change the way we think, um, love, serve, spend our time, treat our spouse, teach our children, even care for our bodies, end quote. When I started my YSI assignment, I assumed the bishop's handbook had a repentance grid where I could look up a sin and it would list the two-part penance, restrictions and duration of those restrictions. 
For example, three months of no temple attendance. The grid might include other factors of being temple endowed. This idea parallels our criminal justice system in which judges have sentencing guidelines within their laws of within their laws of jurisdiction, such as six months in jail for a specific f- offense. I thought similar sentencing guidelines existed in the handbook. I quickly learned our inspired church leaders provided no such grid. Further, the Spirit taught me to understand principles-based repentance, unlike the rules-based criminal justice system, which is not based on the atonement of Jesus Christ. It was a paradigm shift for me. As I began to understand the measure of true repentance is godly sorrow, 2 Corinthians 7.10, and a mighty change of heart, Alma 5.12-14. Not the conclusion of time-braced restrictions, which are the means, not the end, of complete repentance. Godly sorrow and a change of heart capture the central elements of the repentance. Godly sorrow means recognition of the sin, confession, to God, to anyone harmed and when needed to a bishop, and restitution. Change of heart means giving up the sin with a deeper resolve to move forward. For serious sins, I work with each person to develop a customized repentance plan that worked best for them. The process usually included a list of things to do and possible restrictions. I tried to be sensitive to the Spirit and treat each situation as unique. The list of things to do. Uh, might include increased scripture study, prayer, or reading conference talks, or passages of books. My favorite that I gave the YSA, YSA's is chapter 17, called The Blessing of Repentance, from the book The Infinite Atonement by Tad Callister. Now, I just might mention, I didn't put this in the book, but I did not give the YSA's a book called The Miracle of Forgiveness by President Spencer W. Kimball. I believe in the doctrine of that book, but for me, and I think for many, we felt it was just too dark for the YSAs. The, the chapter about repentance is terrific, so I just felt impressed not to give that book, even though it was the book that I grew up with, and I gave them instead this chapter from Ted Callister. And I might mention there are some things in President Kimball's book that we no longer teach. I'm not repentance related. This is kind of a tangent, but just some other topics. And um, you can probably learn more about that if you'd like to. That said, I sustain and support President Spencer W. Kimball and the doctrine of repentance. Now back to my, my words in the book. In some cases, I hesitated to make a long list of reading material because I sense that the individual was not connected to, did not connect to the Spirit in the way. Failure to complete the list might cause them to conclude they could not be forgiven. Often the individual and I counsel together in a team effort instead of an authoritative judicial method that does not allow for collaboration. I also did not want to lose the fact that the objective is godly sorrow and change of heart with the list of items as the means to accomplish a goal, this goal. In some cases, a person completed the list, but we both felt they had not yet experienced godly sorrow and a full change of heart. In other cases, godly sorrow and a change of heart came well before the list was completed. And as a note, there were some YSAs that just, 
they didn't connect with the Spirit by reading. That In fact, it was hard for them to read. So it just had to be sensitive to everybody's skill set and how best to help them um, connect so that they could accomplish repentance. Um, list of restrictions. The restrictions depended on the sin, the spirit, the discussions with the person. I usually went slowly to decide restrictions. In many cases, we felt that pausing a temple attendance or partaking of the sacrament would be a positive thing to help the person. Oftentimes, I felt the restrictions would not be helpful, that partaking of the sacrament and attending the temple, if they could pass the temple recommend questions, would give them added spiritual strength. I've always believed that taking the sacrament is about looking forward and committing to do better rather than not taking the sacrament as a penalty for the past. Many can honestly take the sacrament because they can make those covenants looking forward. Further, for some people, abstaining from the sacrament creates shame that is particularly unhelpful to the repentance process, especially for youth in a family ward. I've included some footnotes here for some added thoughts. There is a higher worthiness level for attending the temple or performing an ordinance, such as blessing a saint. Um, but I believe a much lower hurdle for taking the sacrament, which is even open to non-members or children less than eight years old. <clears throat> um, we could talk a lot about taking the sacrament, but for some YSAs, that was really difficult to not take the sacrament in some of those peers, and especially for homeward youth. I'd just go slow um, and think about the best way to... Um, do positive things versus creating shame. One of the things to think about for not only you bishops, but also you working through the repentance process is how often to meet. Um, at the beginning of my bishop assignment, I would usually try, kind of had a standing idea in my mind that I would meet with people that had messed up, but weren't through the repentance process once a week. And then I had a, uh, somebody that opened up to me and says, that's really not helpful to me, Bishop. It feels shameful for me to kind of have to come every week. It's, it feels like I'm rehashing the original sin, and it's shameful for me. And I thought about that, and then we counseled together. And in this person's situation, we decided that meeting less frequently than a week, I can't remember what we decided, maybe once a month or every three weeks, was the most helpful to them. I think weekly works, especially if somebody's trying to stop messing up and needs that sort of accountability and shot and shot in the arm to meet weekly. But for some people, it may not be helpful. It actually may create shame and a feeling of just reminding them of why they're there in the first place. So I don't have any direct direct um, counsel there. It's just back to customized repentance plans being flexible, counseling with the person to see what works best for them as you're getting inspiration, is listen to their point of view. I wish I'd done more of that um, at the beginning of my assignment. This next section is called church discipline. There were many sins that may result in a membership council, but not required. And I've written a note, please see the general handbook for complete information. It, unless it was a serious sin in which a membership council was required, I was hesitant to convene such a council. During my services as a bishop, I never was in a situation where membership council was required. Now remember, that's a singles ward. It perhaps is different in a married ward 
especially if adultery is involved but with one partner in a married couple. Back to the book. When serious sins were involved, I explained the process of a membership council, and then we discussed together whether this would be helpful for them. Although I, as the bishop, had priested keys for the final decision, the input of the person was valuable as I prayed to Heavenly Father for direction. After this process, I sometimes concluded a membership council would make the process to complete repentance more difficult, and we could get to godly sorrow and change of heart without it. And just a note, that sometimes happened in the cases of sisters when they are talking about sexual sin with a full bishopric and um, and a ward clerk there, and I just felt the shame and the difficulty of that situation would not help them, um, could actually wound them in a way that um, I didn't want to wound them as they were bravely working for the repentance process. And I'm writing here, and we could, we in those cases, we could get to godly sorrow and a change of heart without it. In other cases, while a membership council was not required, I, f- I felt it would be helpful, especially if the YSA felt it would be helpful to them to end a, a behavior pattern to put the experience behind them. I also generally felt that a membership council, unless required by the handbook, would only be helpful if someone wanted to return to full activity. For example, have a temple recommend a calling. In these situations, a membership council was a positive step to help them return to full participation, a goal we both shared. I never felt prompted to, by the Spirit, to initiate a membership council with a YSA who did not want to return to full activity. My feeding it would drive them further away. Some YSAs were sexually active, both straight and gay, who had no immediate desire to change their behavior or get her temple recommend but wanted my help with other aspects of their life, such as overcoming addiction, difficult family situations, self-reliance, or emotional health issues. We both knew the church teachings on the law of chastity, but I felt impressed to not define our relationship by this commandment. I did not call for a membership council, but simply offered support in the area of the lives they wanted to improve. I wanted to be a trusted person in their lives. Yes, I invited them to keep the commandments. I also invited them to attend church so they could feel a spirit. All our heavenly parents should feel welcome at church. The spirit also taught me that confession might be the thing that starts the repentance process, but in some cases could be the thing that completes it. Some people had already received godly sorrow and change of heart and were keeping the commandments. All they needed to do was to confess serious sins to their bishop. I learned to be sensitive to the Spirit and respond to the individual nature of every situation and not react with the mechanical checklist process. I needed to deprogram myself from two years as a missionary teaching repentance with a flip chart outlining a numerical step-by-step process. Yes, those steps are part of the process, but the order may be different in some situations. Now, I'm stepping out of the copy of the book. If I generally you know, encourage people to talk to the bishop early in the repentance process if it's a serious sin and not sort of work it out all on their own and then talk to the bishop. But there are some exceptions where people did it in reverse order. And I'll talk about one. I also, and I don't know if I've mentioned this in the book later, 
I think we as bishops um, need to sort of prepare ourselves for hearing confessions. And um, everybody needs to leave the bishop's office feeling better about themselves. Um, I've heard some difficult stories, and perhaps I could have handled some things in my own ministry better. Um, but I wanted to let everybody know that it, the courage it took to come talk to me about the reality of their lives. I never use shaming comments like, what were you thinking? Or you've turned your back on your covenants or your futures forever changed. One young man who's gay who told me um, about meeting his bishop after kissing his boyfriend and the bishop turned away in disgust. And this young man told me, who wasn't in our ward, just opened up to me about his situation, said, I've never been back. Um, to church since. So I think we need to prepare ourselves how we're going to react and don't create shame, but um, build somebody up for the courage that that they um, mustered to walk in your office and um, share things that are close. So I also feel like, and I don't remember if I put this later in the chapter, that we don't need to drill down and know all the details. Often if someone was sexually active, I just sort of got the top line um, facts without going into nitty gritty detail. Often I didn't, I felt like that created shame. Um, it felt intrusive. Um, it didn't really help me to help somebody um, confess to know all the details. If they were sexually active and it had intercourse oral sex, sure, that was something I needed to understand. Um, perhaps how many partners um, but I'm not trying to be too specific there because I think you need to go by the Spirit. And if you're talking to the bishop, I think it's fine for you to give um, the facts of the situation without having to go into a lot of detail. But that's a general feeling, and the, each situation's different. So this is just a conversation. I'm not um, having this conversation with anybody from, you know, like I'm a current bishop or I know everything. It's just a conversation. Um, with you that are trying to repent and you that are trying to help those repent. Now I'm going back to the book after that tangent. I'm going to read a little bit of the story of Brother Russell Trammell to illustrate the idea that some people uh, meet with the bishop when they're closer to completing repentance. Um, on January 24th, 2016, Russell Trammell, age 26, and a priest in the Aaronic Priesthood walked into our singles ward his first time in church in nearly a decade. I met him at the beginning of church and welcomed to the ward. He stayed the whole three-hour block, a little unusual for someone who is not, not used to church. At the end of the three hours, asked him if he could meet during the week. He responded, can we meet right now? That tells you something about Russell Trammell. We did meet that first Sunday, and I learned that Russell is a remarkable man who completely turned his life around and wanted to turn to a life of following Christ. I learned that Russell, living in California, had fallen into a life of drugs and other challenges. In June of 2014, Russell knew he had to leave California to put his life of drugs behind him. Showing tremendous courage and faith, he moved to Utah. This enabled him to put his challenges with drug use permanently behind him. I believe a loving Heavenly Father has been carefully guiding his dear son, Russell, and knew this move to Utah would help him. And by the way, this is being shared with permission. 
Russell and I met a second time a few days later on January 27th, and I learned more about his life. As we spoke, I felt I was meeting with someone who had gone to enormous lengths to align himself with Heavenly Father before walking to church three days earlier. Russell told me he stopped smoking that day, the last hurdle to live the word of wisdom. During that visit with Russell, I had one of the strongest impressions I've ever upfelt from Heavenly Father. God told me to invite Russell if he could go another week without smoking to receive his limited-use temple recommend and go to the temple. The impression was, this is my dear son. He has come so far on his own. He needs to be in the temple to receive the strength to permanently put his past behind him and see his future. Don't create some drawn-out process to receive his temple recommend. He is at the finish line and ready. Acting on this clear message, I extended an invitation to Russell to give and gave him a priesthood blessing. I believe the steps of repentance are not always in a set order. Everyone is different. Sometimes confession is the last step in the repentance process. So some have already gone, completed the core repentance with the Lord, which is godly sorrow and change of heart. Seven days later, on February 3rd, Russell and I met. Russell reported to continue to live the word of wisdom. He said it was difficult, but he knew he could do it, and the Lord would help him. I went through the temple recommend questions. When Russell answered yes to living the word of wisdom, we both just stopped. Neither of us said anything and took a moment with tears in our eyes. This was far from a routine temple recommend interview. I signed his temple recommend in a, his first in about 10 years. What did Russell do once he had that temple recommend? He bolted from the, up my office that evening and went straight to the Salt Lake Temple to do baptisms for the dead. What did he do the next day? He took off work and went to every temple in the valley, texting me several times during the day about how great he felt and the healing feelings of being in the temple. To me, this was evidence of his godly sorrow and change of heart. Russell never looked back. He changed his living situation to be in a more positive environment. He was laser focused on becoming an elder and receiving his endowment. And I won't read the rest that's there in the book, but he's married, um, father, and is doing really well in his life. But that impression not to complicate the repentance process was one of the most powerful um, insights I've received from Heavenly Father to help one of his children. Now I'm going to talk about the iceberg concept. Christine Holding, a wonderful LDS therapist, taught me the principle of the iceberg, which can be helpful to understand the totality of a situation for someone who's working to fully repent. The iceberg concept means that what is visible above the waterline is only part of the story. Sin occurs above the waterline, but there may be something more underneath. Those who sin and those who are guiding someone through the repentance process may need to learn what is at the bottom of the iceberg to fully in, to understand the full situation. Understand the entire iceberg results in a more comprehensive and customized plan to both complete repentance and solving underlying issues that may reoccur that make reoccurrence less likely. When I met with a person to overcome sin, if the Spirit prompted me, I drew a picture of the iceberg and was what was below the waterline. I listened and listened, sometimes over multiple visits. The person was often surprised that I did, did, did not want to immediately address the repentant steps needed to overcome sin. 
One example at the bottom of the iceberg is the inherent need to be loved, wanted, and desired, a deficit that some women attempted to meet with sexual activity. Some had experiences gapped their entire lives, never feeling valued or loved, sometimes compounded by abuse and trauma. All these factors could lead to a wonderful sister being more vulnerable to sexual activity because of her emotional needs for love and validation. Often the relationship ended when the male partner made it clear he was not looking for a long-term relationship, leaving her even more emotionally injured, compounded by the shame of being sexually active. By far less common, I found the same circumstances could occur with men who were sexually active. The Spirit prompted me to be less black and white in my thinking and seek to understand the reasons behind their choices so I would know how best to help. I realized that most people just didn't wake up one day and think, I want to disappoint my heavenly parents by sinning, so I'm going to be sexually active today. While sexual sins at the top of the iceberg are generally the same, the bottom of the iceberg can be different. At the beginning of my YSA assignment, I would have given everyone the same repentance plan because the sin was the same. By the end of my service, the Spirit taught me to develop a customized repentance plan based on the totality of each individual situation. I recognized the wrong repentance plan could further wound a person and make it harder for them to assess the atonement of Jesus Christ to be healed. Another example is pornography. Yes, pornography is a sin. But as we discussed in chapter 4, the underlying problem is often about how pornography has become a coping mechanism to find a connection or to deal with stress and anxiety. If I felt there was emotional issues at the bottom of the iceberg, I would often suggest to the YSA they might get a therapist involved to work through the issues. In some cases, and with permission, I shared the situation with the therapist without disclosing the person's name to give me insights. My education, training, and professional career in business, and I recognize you to concede to consult experts in areas which I have no training to give me needed perspective. I often found I had blind spots that kept me from effectively ministering. Clinically trained therapists often had valuable insights that were key to connecting the dots to to the full situation at the bottom of the iceberg. The result was a hope-filled, customized repentance plan to help the person move forward. At times, I felt the sin was a coping mechanism um, for emotional health issues such as Poor self-esteem, stress, anxiety, not because of a heart wanting to turn from our heavenly parents through sin. Yes, sin is still sin, but the path to healing could be less about the typical repentance steps, such as no temple attendance for three months, and more about improving one's emotional health. I've always wondered about the woman taken in adultery, whom Jesus told to go away and sin no more. That's in John 8, 311. With this perfect understanding, Jesus knew the totality of her situation and acted with understanding and compassion. One of the ideas um, I've heard over the years is being sexually active for marriage is ranked next to murder. And that may be because of the words of Alma to his son, Cory Anton. And I'll read some of that. Um, This is not all, my son, for thou didst do which was grievous unto me, for thou didst forsake the ministry and go over to the land of Shuron among the borders of the Lamanites after the harlot Isabel. 
Um, know ye not that these things are abomination in the sight of the Lord? Yea, most abominable of all sins, save the setting of innocent blood or denying of the Holy Ghost. And that's in Alma 3, 39, 3, 5. Before we conclude, Alma's words to Corianton are the same words he would use to one of our YSAs. We should pause to remember that Corianton was a mission on a sacred assignment to the Zoramites. He seems to be the face of the church to his people. So a sin was more than sexual morality. It also included the serious sin of leaving the ministry as he abandoned the people for whom he entrusted I sense Alma's heart was heavy, not only with his son's sexual sin, but the negative impact of Corianton's example on the people. Now, this is speculation and not in the book. It's possible Corianton was married. Um, it's possible he was, you know, not, in, not a young person, <laughs> um, which would change things compared to our YSAs. But I don't know that. So that's speculation. Now back to the book. I also worry that if someone is sexually active before married and feel their sin is next to murder, they may falsely conclude their situation is so hopeless the atonement of Jesus Christ is implied to them and their future is forever changed. These are two of Satan's biggest lies. After meeting with many YSAs who have been sexually active before marriage, seeing their core goodness and desire to follow Jesus, I do not feel their sin is similar seriousness to Corianton's because they are not in his situation. They haven't forsaken a mission to engage in sexual activity. Yes, I strongly encourage everyone to keep the law of chastity, but as I read Alma 39, much of the chapter is filled with hope for Corianton's repentance through the atonement of Christ. Moreover, the spiritual record shows that Corianton's repentance was complete. And um, I won't read any more, but there's more in that. Next section of the book is called Shame versus Guilt. When I started my YSA assignment, the words shame and guilt were synonyms in my mind. However, learned they are different. I love how Dr. Brene Brown explains it. Quote, shame is a focus on self. Guilt Guilt is a focus on behavior. Shame is, I am bad. Guilt is, I did something bad. Or in other words, um, I made a mistake. Shame, I am a mistake. So there's a big difference between guilt and shame. Um, No one should feel their mistake. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians about the difference between godly sorrow, which I call healthy guilt, and worldly sorrow, which I call unhealthy shame. Um, For godly sorrow worketh repentance, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. And that's in 2 Corinthians 7.10. Elder Uchtdorf further explained the scripture, quote, Godly sorrow inspires change and hope through the atonement of Jesus Christ. Worldly sorrow pulls us down, extinguishes hope, and persuades us to give in to further temptation. Godly sorrow leads to conversation and a change of heart. It causes us to hate sin and love goodness. I encourage us to stand up and walk in the light of Christ's love. True repentance is about transformation, not torture or torment. End quote. And there's more of his quote there in the book. Um, while a painful feeling, guilt is positive in nature as we look forward with hope, armed with an understanding of the doctrine of the atonement of Jesus Christ to become clean. We know our worth is set because we are beloved children of heavenly parents. 
and always within the circle of divine love, as taught by President Thomas S. Monson, quote, Your Heavenly Father loves you, each of you. That love never changes. It is not influenced by your appearance, by your possessions, or by the amount of money you have in the bank. It is not changed by your talents and abilities. It is simply there. It is there for you when you are sad or happy, discouraged or hopeful. God's love is there for you whether whether or not you feel you deserve love. It's simply there. End quote. Yes, we regret any sin, but we pragmatically realize we are not asked to be perfect in mortality. We know that the real test of our character is what we do after committing a sin. Are we able to learn from it? Will the repentance process make us better, more Christ-like person? Are we one day closer to solving this challenge? Will this journey allow us to help others working through similar challenges? If so, we are using the gift of repentance to grow. Shame, also a painful feeling, is different. Instead of looking forward with hope, it looks backward into a whirlpool of lies and self-loathing about your character and worth. It creates the impression you're a broken, damaged, or flawed person. Believing these negative ideas can keep you trapped in the cycle of sin. I believe Satan is real and wants to destroy us. He wants us to sin, but his real victory is when he can cause you, convince you of the lie that your mortal eternal future is permanently altered, that you're outside the love of your heavenly parents, causing you to forget you are their child. Please stay off the shame road. You are never beyond the reach of, of the atonement of Jesus Christ. I'm grateful for the prophet Nephi's honesty with his own human weakness in the Psalm of Nephi. And that's 2 Nephi 4. Nephi's vulnerability has only increased my love and respect for him. As his humanity draws me toward him as a beloved prophet, his being authentic causes me to rally for his success. Nephi, Nephi talked in pers- first person about his shortcomings, grown of, of, because of his sins. But he was filled with hope, not shame, shame and faith in Christ in whom I have trusted. Nephi's words can give us hope as we realize this prophet teacher is also human. He was once on the same road we are on, yet he did wonderful things despite his valley of sorrow. We do not need to wait to get to the other side of the valley to fill Heavenly Father's, Heavenly Parents' love and to help others. Now I'm going to read this section of the book about the prodigal son. Um, Knowing my love for the parable, the prodigal son, my wife Sheila, commissioned a painting from Michael Malm about that parable as a Christmas gift. That beautiful painting of the father hugging his son hangs in the entry of our home. Each time I see it, I'm reminded of the way we should love each other no matter what, emulating our heavenly parents' unimaginable love for each of us, whether we are, whoever we are, whatever we've done. This parable is a dramatic example of multiple sins. The prodigal son first sinned against his father by wasting his inheritance, compounding by choosing to engage in riotous living. I imagine the parable is a young man, unmarried, is on his own for the first time, out of control. Because of his wealth, he had access to all the things he thought would bring happiness. I think Christ sets up the parable to be a dramatic 
to help us understand that his atonement applies even in the worst case scenario to give us hope in our individual journeys. My wise institute teacher, S. Michael Wilcox, pointed out the story of the prodigal son is introduced in the scriptures by two many parables, the lost sheep and the lost coin. I believe the key to these many parables is that the man and the woman do once they find what they are looking for, they go out and tell everyone. And when he cometh, he calleth his friends together as a neighbor, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Luke 15, 6. And when she had found it, she called her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which is lost. Luke 15, 9. Why would Christ include these two many parables? I believe the core message is that our heavenly parents and our Savior and our Savior rejoice when we are found. The Savior rejoices when, he, when someone accepts his gift to mankind, his atonement. He does not turn away, resent us, or get angry with us. We do not add to his burden when we repent. He has already paid the price. By contrast, when we humans are offended, we may take, make it harder for the offender to receive our forgiveness. We might make the other person grovel for a time while we have control of the relationship because of their offense or mistake. We, we might even relish the power it creates, something I've been guilty of. However, Jesus Christ loves to forgive and is glad when people are found. I can see our heavenly parents and the Savior rejoicing, just like the man who found the sheep and the woman who found the coin. Now, just a thought here that's not in the book. Sometimes um, we talk about our sins adding to Christ's burden, um, and we sometimes do analogies to describe that. I don't believe that's our doctrine. And I think it creates shame um, in the minds and hearts of people being taught that. I think we can teach that Christ has already paid the price. That's not an invitation to sin, um, but it's an invitation to turn to him, knowing that he's already paid the price. Now, back to the book. Back to the prodigal son. When he was in the far country and lived a life of riotous living, and eventually came to himself. Those last three words are critical in the parable. This is the moment when he knew he needed to change. It is that honest self-reflection when we realize we are not where we want to be. I think these moments are God-given, as we sense our divine nature and truly desire to improve. I have met with so many after these moments. They are my heroes for acting on their came-to-himself-herself moment. There is no shame, just hope. I wish I could have met the prodigal at this point. I bet I would have felt his goodness, sincerity, and desire to move forward. I've had these came-to-myself moments. I think the test of character is how I respond. The prodigal son's response was return to his father but he no longer saw himself as a son. He concluded in advance that he returned as a servant, saying, I am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me one of thy hired servants. Why did the Savior put that in the parable? In my mind, it reveals the core meaning of the parable. When we are leaving our own faraway country, do we return as a son or a daughter or a servant? The Savior knows our natural human tendency. 
He also knows that Satan voice would cause us to see our futures forever change for the worse. In this instance, the prodigal son concluding he would be a hired servant. Then comes my favorite part of the parable. The prodigal made his way home alone while considering his fate. I wonder how long that journey was and how many times the son played out in his mind the conversation he was going to have with his father. I cannot imagine the pain he felt having to face his father, having sinned against both father and God, knowing how his father would respond. He would have to see firsthand the pain of his complete failure in his father's eyes, maybe the worst pain to, pain, pain to face. But then the miracle of the parable happens, opening eyes to how our heavenly parents feel when we return. The father sees his son yet a great way off. It's interesting the Savior put that in the parable. The father could have first seen the son as he walked in the door of house, or the son could have returned during the night and climbed into bed. That would have been my plan. But the father sees his son during daylight, still approaching. Look what the father does. Does he hide in his home and make his son grovel? Does he give him the cold shoulder for a while? Is he bitterly angry, reminding him of all his mistakes? Does he disown him? I wonder how I would have handled this if I were the father. I imagine the father, the prodigal's father and mother praying for weeks. You can just sort of see them kneeling down in their farm home maybe for months and years of prayers that their son would return. I also imagine the day the prodigal returns, the father alone working in his field under the hot sun, missing his son. He used to work alongside him with a hand plow, turn, hand plow turning the soil. Leaning on the plow, he looks up to catch his breath, innocently gazing over the horizon and seeing someone Looking closer, considering whether it could be his son, maybe recognizing something familiar in his stride or his clothes squinting his eyes, with his heart rate increasing as he wonders, and then fully realizes this is his beloved son. Then I imagine the father dropping the plow and running across the rows, leaving the outer perimeter of the farm across the open land and finally embracing his son. And what an embrace. The father had compassion and ran, ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Luke fifteen twenty. I have tears in my eyes as I write these words, and tears right now as I read them to you. The response of the father stunned the son. Once that healing embrace ended, the son, probably sobbing, as he received this love and acceptance, looked into his father's eyes and said, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight. I am no more worthy to be called thy son. I think the son is saying, I'm not worthy of your love and compassion and acceptance. I'm not worthy of the way you are treating me. But the father was not done. Remember the son wanted to return in a different position in the household not as a son because of a servant. The parable forever answers the question, when we are in our faraway country, do we, do we return as a son or daughter or servant? The father answered that critical question without hesitation. 
bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Wow. The robe, the ring, the shoes were more than accessories. They gloriously symbolized his return as a son. The Savior uses the best, best, the very best visual imagery to communicate to our minds and hearts that when we return, we return as full sons and daughters of heavenly parents. They stand ready to embrace us as we make our way back to them, just like the father, the prodigal son. As Brother Malka Wilcox said, I don't think religious literature gets any better than that. I believe Satan knows we are very vulnerable when we have our when we have our come-to-ourselves moments. Satan can lure us into the far country, but he only wins if he can keep us there. He does not want us to act on this, on this God-given impression to come to our, ourselves and return home. He wants us to feel shame and hopelessness for our sins. He wants us to believe that our mortal and eternal trajectory are permanently changed. Even if returned, he tries to convince us that we have forfeited our right to be a child of heavenly parents and will be a servant. He tells us we are not good enough. The parable of the prodigal son refutes all those lies and striking visual imagery. As a bishop, I met with many who had the courage to act on their came-to-himself-herself moments and walk into my office. I wanted to be like the father in that parable. Symbolically representing that first tender interaction with the same healing spirit the prodigal experience, my heavenly parents wanted me to universally love and build up the YSAs. When we talked about their far country, far country sins, I tried to make the conversation as uplifting and positive, focus on what they had learned, what direction they wanted to move, and the hope of the genies the hope of the atonement of Jesus Christ to become clean. Just a comment now that's not in the book. I think sometimes we think as repentance is um, cutting out a, a clip in a YouTube video or an audio file. In my day, it was erasing a tape. <laughs> um, I think repentance does take away the sin, but the experience lives with you in a positive way because the experience generally can bring Christ-like attributes um, into your lives, compassion, empathy, kindness, an understanding of, of God's love for all of his children. So this isn't just an experience to be spliced from your life. It's part of mortality that helps you grow. Now, that's not an invitation to go sin, so you'll develop more Christ-like attributes. That's an invitation to work through the repentance process, but then take all the learning with you to be a better person, and maybe more importantly, to be able to help other people feel God's love. Now back to the book, Pink Latter-day Saints. Isaiah 1.18 teaches, Come unto me and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they be as white as snow. A pink Latter-day Saint, and this is coined by Brother S. Michael Wilcox is someone who has sinned but falsely concludes the scripture does not apply to them and they cannot become fully clean. They think, with a lot of repenting on my part and a lot of forgiving on the Savior's part, part, he can get my soul to a light shade of pink but not totally white or clean. They have pink Latter-day Saint thinking, such as no one will want to take someone like me to the temple 
I will never be able to effectively teach the law of chastity to my own children because I messed up. I will not be a good missionary since I had to wait. I will not be as good a missionary as others since I had to wait a year to serve. I won't be as effective in my calling as so-and-so because I bet they never messed up like I did. Please do not have, be a pink lottery saint. If you do this, you are not taking full advantage of the gift of the atonement of Jesus Christ and his promise in Isaiah 1.18. C.S. Lewis agreed, quote, If God forgives us, we must forgive ourselves. Otherwise, it's like setting up ourselves to a higher tribunal than him, end quote. Perhaps this is similar to Elder Uchtdorf's talk about living below our privileges, like the person on the cruise ship who didn't understand the food on the ship was already paid for as part of the ticket and needed, needlessly dined, denied himself joy. Now, this last section, um, <clears throat> we're kind of coming to the end of this podcast in this chapter. Repentance is a spiral staircase. Just visualize a spiral staircase going up as I read this section. My friend Hayden Paul, who talks about resolving pornography use in chapter four, shares these excellent thoughts about repentance. This is all from Hayden Paul. Quote, I don't see repentance as an action with the start and end. It should be an ever-present attitude, a constant desire to improve and reconcile oneself with God. It is a hunger to be closer to Him and more like Him. Without conscious thought, it's easy to separate things into black and white categories, good or bad, positive or negative, healthy or not healthy, and the list goes on. Sometimes our minds use this as a coping mechanism to avoid intricacies about ourselves or the world we don't fully understand. We like to have answers, and we save our brains a lot of energy by creating simple, distinctive categories. It's easier than trying to figure out the gray area. However, this can be detrimental to progression, especially when we make the same mistake repeatedly. It can be frustrating to relapse, repent, repeat, and an easy way to fall into good-bad mindset. Well, I messed up again. Obviously, nothing I've done works. I'm starting from the beginning again. Instead of viewing this effort as an all-or-nothing endeavor of, of being a complete success or complete failure, try viewing your recovery. I love that Hayden used the word recovery as a spiritual spiral staircase. Sure, you're moving in circles, but with every cycle, you also ascend higher and higher. You're looking for progress, not perfection. At its core, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a single, never-ending cycle. The doctrine includes faith in the Lord, repentance, baptism, receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, and enduring to the end. We are not repeatedly baptized and confirmed, but we sincerely partake of the sacrament to our newer covenants to be forgiven our mistakes of sins of the previous week. We implement these basic principles over and over again, allowing the grace of the of Christ to solely change us. The cycle may feel repetitive, and it is, but it's the only way to ascend. End quote. Um, this isn't in the book, but something just came to my mind. I think if we're a bishop or a parent, I think we can create a culture. Um, I wish I'd gone to Elders Quorum Release Society and sort of talked to them about the repentance process and just didn't wait until they walked in the office, I probably would have told them 
some of the things I've written in the book. This is my goal. If you walk into my office, is you will, to help you feel better and to walk with you through the repentance process and to be your advocate. And these are some of the principles. Um, you could invite them to read this chapter of Tad Callister's book right now. But I think there's, a, in some ways, especially with a bishop they're not familiar with, there may be anxiety about how the bishop will respond. And I think we can just practically tell the YSAs and Elders Corner of the East Society or Fifth Sunday, this is how I respond. And this is how I want you to feel. And this is how I'll approach the repentance process with you. And invite them that you want to walk on this road with them and be their advocate. I think that gets more people talking to the bishop. And I think that's a good thing. I think anything we can do to create where a safe person is a good thing. I think Jesus role modeled that um, as well as anybody I know um, in history. I just sense if we were around Jesus with all the ways he treated people that we would feel safe talking to him about our life. And I think parents can do the same thing. I think um, we could talk about pornography, but I think um, we could talk to our, we can teach um, the values of our home, which is includes not viewing pornography, but we can also teach if you view, view pornography, this is how I will respond if you tell me that. And tell them you'll respond in a loving, kind way with no shame and say, I want to walk with you and I want to be a safe person for you. My goal as a parent is not perfection. My goal is I want to walk with you um, through the mistakes you make um, growing up in your adolescence years. I think a homeward bishop can communicate the same things to the young men and young women in the ward. One of the greatest gifts we can communicate to people is we're safe for them to open up to. If especially if we're in a trusted position. So I'm just looking at my notes that I wrote to make sure I got to everything. I think I got to everything. So I'll just sign off. Um, that prodigal parable brings me to tears every time I read it. And because that's how I think our Heavenly Father feels about all of his children. And he loves them and he loves it when they come back. And there's no shame in coming back. And so I get, I invite you, if you are in whatever that faraway land looks like for you, to come back. Um, if you can't talk to your bishop yet, talk to your heavenly parents. They love you. They're not waiting for you to figure this all out on your own and then return to them. They want to talk to you right now. Even if it's on your very worst day, talk to them. Pray to them. They want to walk with you. Um, one of the things culturally I worry that we do is we say, we're going to go figure out all this on our own and then return to full church activity. Once we can walk in the bishop's office and say, we've been clean for X number of times and had no mess ups for X number of times. And yeah, I think getting to that point is a good thing, but I don't think you should do it um, that way. I think you should talk to your heavenly parents and your bishop and make them trusted partners with you. It will improve the quality of the repentance process for you, I believe, and help you to get to complete repentance earlier. So act on the impressions that you felt. I hope this podcast is helpful. And um, God loves you. And I'm grateful for you listening to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. Mm-hmm.